You are listening to Payers, Providers, and Patients, Oh My. I'm Joe Records. And I'm Pyle Nana Buddy. In this episode, we will continue our discussion of the issues that providers face during the COVID-19 pandemic. Last time, we discussed with Eric Sue the labor and employment issues that can arise for healthcare providers. And now we're going to discuss with Brian McGovern of the Healthcare Group some of the guidance that's been issued so far for providers by federal and state healthcare regulatory agencies. Thank you, Joan. Yes, what we have seen in the past month is a series of guidance and directives as the facts on the ground unfold with respect to the coronavirus and more information is learned about the disease progression and the risks. And we've seen guidance almost on a continual basis from several specific sources, that's the CDC, as well as the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, which oversee healthcare providers, including nursing homes and home care agencies, among others, as well as hospitals. In addition to the guidance from those authorities at the federal level, Providers also are subject to more particular guidance from the state health departments. And in addition to the regulatory agencies that I just recited, healthcare providers are also should be monitoring and may be subject to executive action taken by the federal administration or at the state level. Just as an example, the New York State Governor Cuomo issued an executive order which relaxed the requirements for a number of regulations for uh, nursing homes and home care agencies, as well as for physicians and licensure issues to basically allow flexibility for those providers. So the short answer to that question is that providers should be monitoring the guidance that's being issued at those agency levels and also should be leaning on their respective trade associations who are gathering a lot of the guidance and helping to organize that information as well as to seek clarity from the regulatory agencies as sometimes the guidance that's issued may involve conflicts with existing laws or or practices. And what kinds of guidance has been issued by these agencies with respect to providers' obligations as employers? So first and foremost, healthcare providers as employers should be making sure that their workers, particularly those caring for elderly and other high-risk populations, immunocompromised respiratory ailing patients, in whatever care settings, are sufficiently trained and knowledgeable about the symptoms of coronavirus to identify suspected uh, patients, as well as about the provider's infection control procedures and protocol measures that are already in place to prevent the transmission of infectious disease. And that would include training that would have to extend to any new or contract employees in some situations facilities may be facing a staffing shortage, not only because there's a general shortage of registered nurses, but some personnel may become symptomatic or be infected by the coronavirus, and so may have to self-quarantine at home. 
creating a staffing shortage. So you may need to then resort to contract or staffing agencies to supplement your workforce. But those employees need to be educated on the infection control protocols as they are being amended in some cases on a day-to-day basis to incorporate the guidance uh, sources that I just mentioned. And for existing employees, to the extent that it can be incorporated, it would help also to provide a refresher or in-service training to make sure that they understand those procedures and protocols. And that would include also the use and indications for the personal protective equipment, including the use of surgical masks, gowns, gloves, and also hand hygiene practices. CMS, in particular, has essentially directed home care agencies as well as nursing homes and other providers to monitor and actively screen employees for symptoms and to send them home as to self-quarantine until they've confirmed to be negative and are safe to return at home. And the guidance gets even more particular depending upon whether an employee has actually tested positive, in which case they cannot return until the employee is confirmed. And then those who have been symptomatic but not confirmed or not tested positive, they too have to be self-quarantined for at least 14 days after reporting the symptoms. And those not symptomatic but potentially exposed, for instance, the guidance, at least from New York State, provides that they should be furloughed for 14 days as well. So the guidance gets very granular depending upon the employee is symptomatic, non-symptomatic, but exposed to someone who has tested positive or has tested positive. And I think the last point I just want to make in this regard is that the provider should make sure that the provider's infection control specialist infection preventionist or clinical manager is apprised of any potentially exposed or infected employees who are quarantined and then should be tracking potential contacts that employee may have had to make sure that the provider identifies other potential infected staff or patients and takes appropriate safeguards. Brian, you mentioned some guidance that was issued by CMS and Governor Cuomo, among others. But can you provide some examples of guidance that is directed at specific types of providers? Sure. And I don't mean to focus exclusively on nursing homes, but nursing homes, of course, are now one nursing home in particular is has been the sort of epicenter of the coronavirus outbreak in the state of Washington. And it's understandable because that population in a nursing home are living in a congregate setting. So they're living among each other. And secondly, they are, for geriatric nursing facilities, they are the high-risk population being elderly. And also, you know, other populations that may be ventilator-dependent patients who may or may not be elderly also may be a high-risk population. So much guidance has been promulgated, focused at the nursing home, and understandably so, because the hospitals are receiving patients who 
have been infected and are then addressing how to care for them. And the focus of my discussion was the congregate settings and other healthcare settings where the population is high risk. So that's the nursing home especially, but also home care and others where the patients are high risk and are living in those settings as opposed to a patient with the coronavirus being transferred to the hospital for acute care episode. That's an important difference. And I think that's why there's more guidance directed at the nursing homes than even the hospitals. And it's an evolving process. And one example is that the CMS has issued a guidance to state survey agencies as to how and how they are expecting nursing homes to take measures to prevent the transmission of coronavirus and also to mitigate any risks going forward. And there, CMS is quite explicit that the facilities must actively screen all staff beginning at the shift for fever and other respiratory symptoms and actively take temperatures and document the absence of shortness of breath, et cetera. So CMS is giving very granular direction to nursing homes through this guidance. And even though it's directed to the survey agencies charged with enforcing infection control regulations at nursing homes, nursing homes are expected to implement the recommendations and guidance incorporated in that advice into their own practices. Each nursing home, for instance, is required already to have infection control policies and procedures in place, but the guidance that's been issued by CMS, along with separate guidance from the state departments of health, essentially adds to and particularize what specifically providers are supposed to be doing. So that's one example, but nursing homes are not the only providers that have been receiving guidance. CDC provides guidance across all provider spectrum. And so all providers have to be monitoring any directives or memoranda that CMS may be issuing. And some of that guidance is not specific to a particular provider category. And in that case, all providers need to understand it, assimilate it into their infection control procedures going forward, and to make sure that staff are fully educated about it at the same time that they're trying to operate a facility, care for residents or patients. So it's a very challenging time for providers. Brian, you mentioned a number of different sources of guidance for providers. We've got the federal government, CMS has issued a number of guidance documents related to Medicare, Medicaid, um, in some cases, Medicare and Medicaid, as well as we've got the CDC obviously has been uh, issuing a lot of information about the pandemic. If I am a healthcare provider, a state licensed facility or, or some other healthcare provider, this is all coming at me pretty fast. Where should I be looking to make sure that I'm up to speed on what my obligations are as a provider? I think you cannot limit your resources just to the federal level. As a licensed provider, each state will have 
its own requirements for all licensed providers for responding to and addressing the coronavirus. So it's incumbent upon providers to also monitor the guidance issued in their particular state by their respective Department of Health or other regulatory authority because the federal guidance is one source and may arguably be a baseline if any particular state provides more prescriptive guidance beyond what CMS or CDC has already promulgated, the provider must incorporate that guidance into their practices and procedures going forward at the risk of any licensure or enforcement action. So I think each provider should have established a system for getting alerts that may be issued or any communications that may be issued by CDC, CMS, and their state health licensing agency. And as I said at the outset, providers have a day job, and that's to care for patients and and residents and have limited resources as they themselves. So many of the providers are members of associations who are essentially aggregating all of this information pertinent to their members and are also providing alerts and updates as well. So take advantage of that membership if you are in an association so that a particular guidance or memoranda doesn't slip through the cracks and you have an additional source for helping you navigate compliance with the evolving guidance from the different levels of government. For institutional providers or facilities, you touched on this a bit, but what are the responsibilities of facilities and institutional providers to limit or somehow control the contact that their personnel are having with patients and to screen or to otherwise look at whether their providers who are having face-to-face encounters with patients, whether they might be creating a risk of spreading the virus? So they have an affirmative obligation under the current guidance to screen each employee who may have contact with patients or residents. And so they cannot rely on their employees to report symptoms. They must affirmatively inquire with the employees whether they have the symptoms that were mentioned at the outset, sore throat, shortness of breath, and the like, and other flu-like symptoms like fever. And so if they do report those symptoms, they then must, having identified it, direct the employee to go home and self-quarantine. In addition, if the employee has been confirmed to be infected by coronavirus, or if the employer is concerned that the employee may have been infected, based on the symptoms and the like, the employer should also be reporting it to their local health department, including specifically the state department of health, and to ensure that they have that information. And as I mentioned, if an employee who has been confirmed positive for coronavirus, the clinical staff should investigate 
the contacts that employee may have had in the facility, not only among patients, but also other staff, and then inquire in turn with those contacts to see if they are symptomatic and essentially make sure that they could take all appropriate steps to mitigate the transmission further of the coronavirus or to get appropriate treatment for those who may have been infected by the employee identified through that screening process. As part of mitigating the transfer, as you mentioned, and limiting contact with patients in light of how easy and fast COVID-19 appears to be spreading, how does telehealth provide an opportunity for providers to care for patients without face-to-face encounters? Yes. Well, I think telehealth in particular could be a valuable tool for continuing to provide care and minimizing the risk of exposure or transmission for especially the home care sector. And without going into the particulars at the federal level, certainly the federal government has recently relaxed the limitations on telehealth, and many states are encouraging use of telehealth or telemedicine as a way to avoid the risk of transmission. So I think that it presents a potential opportunity for preventing transmission. In addition, some agencies or providers may be facing a staffing shortage, and so it may help address the potential shortage if staff have to be relieved, if symptomatic, and we talked about the requirement of furloughing employees who are symptomatic or tested positive. So the telemedicine may provide an opportunity to continue providing care in the face of a staffing shortage and at the same time avoid the exposure that is attendant with the transmission of the coronavirus. So I think, and it may prove to be a tool going forward for providing care more efficiently in some contexts, including in home care, but to address the immediate pandemic, telehealth may play an important role in mitigating that transmission and avoiding unnecessary contacts with potentially infected patients or family members of patients and the like. And what are some of the measures that the federal government and the states have taken to enable providers to use telehealth? Well, most recently, the CMS has formally waived the restrictions in the Medicare program, allowing Medicare beneficiaries to receive medical services via telehealth at their homes during the coronavirus emergency. So the existing regulations limited telehealth to services provided in designated sites, including nursing homes or medical offices. With the relaxation of that requirement at the federal level, now there is no restriction on delivering care and getting paid as well for delivering care. If you are a physician, for instance, in the patient's home as opposed to one of the designated sites specified in the regulation. And each state Medicaid program in one state or another has already or is considering 
similar relaxation of requirements for telemedicine that may have limited the reach of telemedicine. And one other related point to telemedicine is the issue over whether the treating physician is licensed in the state where the telemedicine services are being delivered to the patient. As I mentioned earlier, New York State, through Governor Cuomo executive order, has permitted out-of-state physicians to provide telemedicine services and other services to patients in the state. Essentially, through this executive order, the governor is providing a reciprocity for physicians who are duly licensed in another state to practice and deliver care in the state. So that issue has always been an impediment as well to telemedicine. So at the state level, there are measures being taken to open up the opportunities to telemedicine in light of the coronavirus pandemic. I believe California is taking a similar measure or has already taken a similar measure to relax the physician licensure requirements. In closing, are there any other challenges for healthcare providers as employers or as providers that you're seeing that providers need to be aware of and need to be checking their sticks on? Yeah, so I alluded to this earlier, Joe, and even before the outbreak of coronavirus, many healthcare providers have been struggling with a growing shortage of health professionals to provide the licensed services that are required, including RNs and others. And so the coronavirus, with the impact on employees as well as patients, may exacerbate that shortage if employees, as consistent with the guidance, are required to self-quarantine at home while they are symptomatic. So in addition, the many employment-related challenges here, one of them is that while this pandemic is impacting communities, communities are shuttering operations, including transportation, closing schools, and creating challenges for the employees to even make it to work and at the same time arrange for childcare and the like. So while all of us are facing these issues, they're particularly challenging for healthcare providers with employees who have to try to juggle those competing demands and challenges. So those are the particular challenges more operational than any that the healthcare provider community is now facing in a more exaggerated way with the coronavirus outbreak. And I think it's important for employers to try to instill confidence in the employees that despite the risks and challenges they face, caring for patients, some of whom may actually be infected, that the employer is really mindful of their employees' needs, their safety concerns, and the competing pressures in their lives, and to convey to employees the appreciation for the commitment shown, both coming to work and delivering care in trying circumstances, and more practically and more relevant to their obligations under regulation, the employer has to you know, remain fully apprised of 
and incorporate as best practices all of the guidance, including the guidance about protection of healthcare workers promulgated by the various regulatory agencies, and to provide the appropriate personal protective equipment necessary to protect employees as well as patients. Now, we know in addition to the shortage of staff and that may arise during this outbreak, we've heard reports of shortage of supplies, the gowns, the masks, the gloves, etc., the personal protective equipment that employees should be provided. And the guidance has recognized that some of that PPE may not be available and may be in short supply on an interim basis or in your particular locality. And so they will make an accommodation for facilities so long as the facility or provider makes diligent efforts to secure supplies or alternative supplies for their employees. And I think keeping the employee apprised of all of the steps that the employer is taking to monitor the coronavirus, share information about the risks, and tell employees all of the steps that are being taken to protect their health as well as their patients, and that the employee is a priority, if anything, equal to or at least a close second to the care of patients. And I think that will go a long way to instill confidence in employees that they will come to work when everyone else is maybe sheltering at home. They're going to make the effort to get to work and care for patients who need their services because that staff is the front lines to helping fight coronavirus and care for those unfortunate individuals who may have been infected. Thanks, Brian. This is obviously a time of great challenges for everyone and, and perhaps no one more than healthcare providers as they're the, the front line against this crisis. I appreciate your time today and your insight into what healthcare providers need to consider dealing with this pandemic. Thank you, Joe and Pilot. It's uh, my pleasure. Payers, Providers, and Patients Oh My is a podcast brought to you by Kroll and Mooring LLP. You can find more information at kroll.com slash healthcare podcast. Thank you.